Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, a podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking about Albanian sworn virgins. Before we start, we have a brief announcement from Jason and a special guest. Before we begin the episode, hello, I'm Jason, and I've got a special guest here for a brief interview about something very exciting and very queer. If you would like to introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name's Alexandra. I'm they, them, and I'm an opera singer. So Alexandra is a friend of the podcast who's involved in a very exciting production that's uh, starting January 22nd right here in Melbourne. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about this production? Absolutely. So coming to you from the production team at Gertrude Opera, we are putting together a chamber opera for Midsummer Festival this year. And it's a coming of age story about Hannah, who is a transgender woman. And she's portrayed by two singers. Um, the voices are pre and post transition. We watch Hannah grow up and we see her challenges in conforming to gender norms, surviving assault and self-imposed alienation while leading a double life, and then how she finally connects with the larger trans community and with herself as one whole Hannah. Um, the music and concept were by Laura Kaminsky, who's a transgender composer. She's American. And uh, the libretto were put together by Kimberly Reed and Mark Campbell, also American, queer, fabulous people. As one was actually commissioned in 2014 by American Opera Projects, and it's the most produced modern opera in America right now. Wow, that's really cool. First of its kind, I think it's super informative, and it's definitely for all ages as well. Broadway World actually did a great job describing it, saying that it humanizes one of the world's least understood and most mistreated minorities at a time when substantial progress made by minority groups is kind of under attack in America. Yeah. It's super exciting as someone in this community to see um, our stories being represented. That's why I would love for the word to get out that we're putting on this production. All of the people behind the scenes in the cast and also backstage are queer. So we are putting on queer art by queer musicians. We're actually doing something for us. Yeah, no, that's really awesome to hear. If you are interested in As One and in Melbourne, the show is running from January 22nd through to January 31st at 45 Downstairs, which is a wonderful little CBD venue that I've been to before and really enjoyed. For our international listeners, obviously, uh, as Alexandra said, this is an opera that's being put on a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really cool to hear. But also, you mentioned to me earlier that there might be some opportunity for engagement with the creators. Absolutely. So at the end of our production period, uh, we're looking at next weekend. Our dates are to be confirmed. Mm -hmm. We're going to Skype in with the creators for um, American audiences to listen in. We're hoping to live stream mm -hmm. this event. And we want to have allies and our queer family come in and ask the creators questions. What do you want to know about the process of putting together theatre and, and also how they translated their own stories? Because it's loosely based on experiences they had growing up. Excitingly, we want to take it on tour. I'm very passionate about this because I want as many Australian audiences to see it as possible. Depending on funding, if this season goes well at midsummer, we want to take it on tour to Sydney and to Brizzy as well. Yeah, that's really awesome to hear. If you would like to get a ticket for As One, I believe we might have a discount available for mm -hmm. our listeners. So tickets are available on the 45 Downstairs website for As One with Gertrude Opera. But I brought directly to the LGBTQIA plus family a special discount um, from one queer to another. 
Uh, so just put in um, geo full or geo concession and uh, yeah, I'm hoping to get as many of us here to see it on a sweet 10% discount. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alexandra, thank you for coming on and telling us all about this very cool production. And now on with the episode. Bye. Bye. There are a few content warnings for this episode. It will contain mentions of violence and murder, misogyny, abuse within marriage, and a brief mention of homophobia. If you would prefer to avoid those, feel free to skip to another episode. I'm going to start off with just like a little bit of background about Albania. So it's time for another episode of Geography with Queer as Fact. Yay! Yay! Who knows where Albania is? Like there. If Europe is this, it's like there. <laughs> it's like next to Greece, isn't it? I feel like I hear people say Greece and Albania. Yeah, this is this is true. This is true. I'm um, doing okay. Yeah, you're doing okay. I feel like Eli made an accurate... Nobody can see it, but Eli made accurate <laughs> gestures about this. So Albania is on the coast of the Adriatic Sea, which puts it just like across the Mediterranean, east of Italy, kind of. It borders on Greece to the south, so you were right. Yes. Ten um, points to me. Yes. North Macedonia to the east, and Kosovo and Montenegro to the north. The area that we're discussing is largely in northern Albania, but it does spill over a little bit into the those bordering countries in the north because as we know nations are fake borders are arbitrary but I'm largely going to say Albania for convenience because the groups involved generally consider themselves to be Albanians living outside the border Mm. to give you the briefest possible history of Albania (laughs) I don't want to like crush you with content with like background content now but I do want you to like have a basic idea from the 1400s until 1912 Albania was under the rule of the Ottoman Empire Prior to that, it was under the rule of the Byzantine Empire. Between those, it's a sort of mostly Christian but partly Muslim nation. After they declared independence from the Ottoman Empire in 1912, Albania was a republic until World War II. During World War II, it was occupied by the Italians and then the Germans. And after this, it became a communist state under Enver Hoxha, who we were talking about the other day with all those bunkers. Oh yeah, he's the crazy man that built bunkers everywhere to protect him from the Cold War. I guess. Yeah. Is Albania the one that still has lots of little bunkers everywhere? Yes. Yeah. 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 I've seen yeah. pictures of this. It looks cool. It yeah. is. I get that it, you know, hints at a complicated history, but the pictures look cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it is full of weird little concrete bunkers that were built during this period. So under Hosha, Albania aligned itself first with the USSR and then with Mao's China. And then after the death of Mao, kind of struck out on its own as an isolated socialist state, which went about as bad badly as you can imagine. <laughs> um, after the fall of communism in 1991, a lot of Albanian traditions that had been suppressed under communism have been revived, but that's not really something we're going to go into heaps of detail about here because it very quickly then becomes a sociology podcast and not a history podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if I had to write a probable history for a random European nation, that would be about what I would have written. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems, it seems good. Yeah. 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 That's, that's how Albania is. I don't know. I guess the bit where they allied themselves with China is a bit of a surprise for a random European nation. Yeah, you actually, you see it a lot in like Chinese propaganda in like the 70s and 60s. You'll see these posters that are like eternal friendship between China and our comrades in Albania or whatever. Okay. Which always seemed kind of out of nowhere to me when I was in high school and I was like, what's Albania? When you're studying China and you're like, who are these people? I think when I was in school, my main knowledge of Albania was that it's where Voldemort goes in between. (laughs) 
having <laughs> bodies. That's true. It is where Voldemort yeah. goes. It is, especially the part that we're talking about. So Northern Albania is very mountainous and very like inaccessible from the outside. Voldemort aside, that's protected, sort of protected Northern Albania from a lot of the cultural influence of successive occupations mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the communist regime and so forth. And to some extent, Northern Albania has been kind of self-governing by a set of very codified common laws, which are now gathered together in a written document called the Kanun, but were like traditionally orally passed on. The Kanun governs both Catholic and Muslim households in Northern Albania. It's a secular set of laws. So you just mentioned Catholic households. When you said it's a Christian country, is it specifically a Catholic country? I don't necessarily know about the southern part of Albania. Northern Albania is Catholic. As much as it's like, you know, partly Christian and partly Muslim and so on. Yeah, it's like the part, the Christian part is a Catholic part. It was not always Catholic. It was visited by Franciscan missionaries in sort of the 15th century. Oh, okay. Prior to that, they were Christian. I guess because you mentioned they were occupied by the Byzantine Empire. Yes. Yeah. I assumed they'd be like some kind of Eastern Orthodox. Yeah, there is still some like some Orthodox population there as well, but it's largely a Catholic area. Okay. I don't know if this like fact will be at all relevant in the episode, but it's good that we know. It's yeah, it's probably worth knowing because it's such an isolated area. Even like within that, the sort of religious practices are quite like culturally unique. So while you can kind of technically say that it's a Catholic area, a lot of religious practices are going on there that just don't happen elsewhere. Okay. There is an English version, like an English translation of the Kanun available. I was unable to get hold of the whole document. I did see quotations from it. In this document, the practice of sworn virgins is specifically mentioned, unlike their place in society and so forth. Oh, so it's like that codified. Yeah. Interesting. I guess I assumed this would go how the um, Golden Orchid societies went where we went in assuming it was very codified and it turned out to be not codified so I've just done the opposite thing uh, yeah, and no. presumably I'll do the opposite thing again with the next thing I'll just continue until death <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is probably what happens yeah no it's it's very much codified mm-hmm. and like within that document there are specific circumstances where it sort of recommends this oh okay and that okay. kind of thing I'm going to take a moment here just to talk about the terminology that I've decided to use for sworn virgins the term I generally found in academic texts for like a assigned female at birth people who had assumed masculine gender roles in Albanian society is Bernesha, which as far as I can tell is an Albanian word for man with a feminine ending on it. However, within Albania, this word is just like a generally used positive descriptor for a woman exhibiting masculine characteristics, like kind of a strong woman, an independent oh, yeah. woman, that kind of thing, to the point where several authors mentioned like their guide or their translator or something being confused when they asked about Bernesha and sort of assuming that they were interested in writing an article about like women doing men's jobs during the communist era or something like that. Mm-hmm. So Albanians don't recognize Bernesha as a word for sworn virgins and actually academics have just decided this is the word for some reason is a word for sworn virgins but not like a specific word Mm. i guess Ah, okay like it it wouldn't be misapplied if you used it but it's not just for that yeah okay the second thing that I found in the words of Antonia Young, who's one of the academics that I read a lot, 
She said, none of the approximately 15 that I have met, the 15 sworn virgins she means, seemed aware of any special term, preferring to think of themselves simply as men. Okay. So in that context, I've basically chosen just to refer to them as sworn virgins when I need to distinguish rather than use a word with a feminine ending on it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Incidentally, and I'm just going to warn you about this, I found it very difficult to decide whether I was talking in past tense or present tense while I was researching this episode. Mm because a lot of sworn virgins are still alive. Some of these practices continue. As I said, a lot of like traditional Albanian practices were revived after the fall of communism. So if I'm wildly inconsistent about (laughs) is and was, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I've definitely thought about this. I think when I did the recent episode on Weaver, I thought about this question too a lot when I was just talking about like Zuni culture in America. Mm. And I I generally went for past tense because I was like, I've been researching the past and I know these facts are true about the past. They may be true about the present, but I'm not sure because I didn't research that. Yeah, where I guess the period that I'm researching kind of merges into the present. Yeah, because we were once alive in like the 19th and early 20th century. It was a bit more that was the past. Yeah. So like I said, there are a small number of sworn virgins still alive living in rural Albania, probably somewhere between like, I don't know, 20 and 80, but it's hard to say. Finding them in order to interview them is generally very difficult, both because northern Albania is just very remote and inaccessible. And also because for many of them, they're simply socially accepted as men and being elderly, the people who know about their past are not around anymore. Mm. And so nobody was able to point researchers in the direction of Mm. people with those experiences a lot of the time because they were just men. And I guess especially Um, if there is no word to ask for these people, like if academics don't have a word that Albanians, like Northern Albanians understand to describe these people then like, how are you going to find them? Most of what I've got here does come from interviews with sworn virgins and their families, but that's a very limited number compared to what's the number of sworn sworn virgins who are probably out there. Okay. So we are going to be generalizing a bit based on a few people's experiences. Yeah. And I am a little bit concerned that the few people's experiences that we'll be generalizing are going to be the ones with like slightly more feminine leaning Mm, presentations or identities just because they're easier to identify. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's something to keep in mind. Okay. The two major sources of English language academic research on the topic are Antonia Young, who I I mentioned earlier and Renee Gremo. They never worked together as far as I can tell, but both were doing field work interviewing sworn virgins and their families in the 80s and 90s. Neither of them is particularly sensitive in comprehending the genders of the people that they're talking about. Okie doke. I'm sorry about that. I don't understand all these people that you come across who are like just doing gender research. Like that's their job. That's what they do. But they're just so bad at it and they're really not trying. Yeah. Yeah. Like Antonia Young is that one I quoted before saying these people generally prefer to be called men rather than any particular term and continues to persistently use she as the pronoun for all sworn virgins that she talks about, regardless of Mm. the pronouns that like they use or their friends and family use to describe them to the point of like change 
changing pronouns mid-sentence oh because gosh. of a quote kind of thing. Are they like sociologists or anthropologists or what? Yeah, sociologists. Okay, yeah. Um, so I think that with these like sociologists in this case or like anthropologists mm-hmm. or historians who do this like gender-specific research, they come to it assuming that they have the expertise required from being sociologists mm-hmm. and don't think about any kind of yeah. like, sensitivity required specifically just about gender yeah. or sexuality more broadly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is why we, as people who are not doing any work in this field specifically, are allowed to talk about it. <laughs> because if they can come to it with like half the expertise required, then we, we can, can come with half the, other half. the other half. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, that's true. Like, that's, that's why the podcast exists. <laughs> Having said that about Antonia, she's, like I said, made some questionable choices about pronouns, mm. but otherwise seems like relatively, I guess, relatively sensitive to the variety of okay. personal oh, okay. gender identities that she's encountered. She just for some reason has made the decision to always use feminine pronouns. For some reason. For some reason. (laughs) A mixed scholarly bag. A mixed scholarly bag, yeah. Um, (laughs) Renee Gremo is... Amongst other things, in one article, he cheerfully admitted to pretending to be a photographer interested in local architecture in order to get to talk to a man who was assigned female at birth and didn't want to be involved in research about his history. Cool. Um, That's unethical. Yes. And then he just wrote about that in the article. He was like, sometimes a little bit of deception is required. And I was like, okay, Rene. That's, uh... Um, Did he he not have to do an ethics approval for anything that he did? When was this? Is this the 80s or 90s? Yeah, did you say? yeah. Okay, okay, I guess he didn't. <laughs> yes, I guess that's um, not a thing. I had to do so many ethics approvals for my thesis just to like chat to some queer people in Melbourne who actively wanted to be chatted to. Yeah, we've come so far. Some of them were in Adelaide, weren't they? Yes. I mean, you know, <laughs> that sounded like I was adding Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> some of them Adelaide. were in Adelaide, which is way less ethical. <laughs> it's not ethical. Some of them were in Adelaide. Sorry, like you have to leave. It's not ethical to talk to people from Adelaide. <laughs> This podcast is a disaster. (laughs) He also, anytime he uses masculine pronouns for a sworn virgin, puts them in quotation marks. Ah, yes, the good old scare quotes. And yeah, at one point felt comfortable writing, she always uses the masculine gender when talking about herself. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) It's just such, like, willful ignorance at work here. Unfortunately, he was also one of the very few people who tried to talk about the sexuality of sworn virgins Mm -hmm. and also just provided some detailed case studies that I was unable to find elsewhere. I hate it when there's like one scholar and that one scholar is just bad. Is this guy, yeah. Beyond that, there are a few more recent articles, some academic, some journalistic articles. Like there was a long New York Times article where somebody went and just interviewed a couple of sworn virgins about their lives and that kind of thing. Largely, the more modern articles are way more sensitive about pronouns. One person just never used pronouns for any of them, would just use their name every time, which I guess was fine. Uh, Um, Seems kind of medium, but I guess medium is better than Yeah. It also, it's sort of hard to say in the context because often in like for one person, they and people around them will use inconsistent pronouns a lot Mm, and that kind of thing. And so they've just kind of gone, I'm going to avoid this question altogether. Another one did use different pronouns depending on the person's preference, which was frankly amazing. Low bar, but they cleared it. (laughs) 
Um, and shaving the bare minimum. Wow, shocked. Okay. So that was my sources. Cool. Good. Having done all that, now we can talk about what <laughs> becoming a sworn virgin actually looks like. Okay. The process of like transitioning to a male gender role seems to be fairly simple. Like, I'm like now, am I right? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> The person in question literally just, like, takes vows of chastity, usually in front of some, like, respected community elders as witnesses, cuts their hair short, begins to wear masculine clothing, and that's it. They're, oh, they're done. They're, they're done. Um, it's just an afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's not to say that sometimes families will be, you know, discouraging of this or something mm-hmm. like that, but they make those vows and they're done. Okay. Um, traditionally, this is a highly respected role in a community. There are a few versions of the canon, but having said that, that's like there are a few written versions of what's a sort of nebulous oral document, essentially. Mm. Um, So the most widely known written version doesn't go into a lot of detail about sworn virgins other than just to acknowledge that they exist. Another version of the laws, the Canon of Skanderberg, Skanderberg is just like the person who wrote this down, goes into much greater detail saying that a sworn virgin should be seated at the most honoured place by the hearth as the patriarch of the family would sit and at the table when being served meals. Though today, as sworn virginity becomes increasingly conflated with a kind of more recent Western understanding of lesbianism, which is great, like gradually filtered into Albania in the last sort of few decades kind of thing, which means it's not necessarily as widely accepted as it was in the past. All of the sworn virgins that I read about seem to be accepted, if not like revered by their communities. Good, good stuff. It mentions like the hearth is where the patriarch would sit. Uh, is that in the context of like a family unit? Yes. Imagining? So like, do they then in taking on this role level up and get their dad's seat? Is that kind of thing? <laughs> or is it just like they now sit kind of like with the revered men of the family? Um, it depends. Sometimes somebody becomes a man because like in the absence of another patriarch. Okay. So so like, for example, if a father dies and there's only and there's only assigned female, then one will be like, I'm the man now. Yeah. I've got this. Yeah, basically. Other times, yeah, they will sort of join the head of the house and on his death become the head of the household. Mm. So I guess a similar um, role to what a son just yeah, play? Mm. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I guess I'm trying to picture if it's like the same as, you know, say the other hypothetical sons in this family, or if it's like, well, head son, you need to move down one now. <laughs> I'm definitely, I do have actually have and I guess I'll bring it up now I'm going to talk a little bit later about one sworn virgin who actually had an older brother and on the death of their father the family just sort of agreed that the younger one was more suited to being the head of the house and okay yeah do you know how normal that would be so if you had a family that had just had like three sons Mm. would traditionally the oldest son be considered the head of the house or would it just be like they just sort things out reasonably (laughs) yeah they sort it down be like who's suited to this job like is it normal for a younger child a younger sibling to just be recognized as the head of the household it would be like typically sort of it's you know conventionally the oldest son but in circumstances where the oldest son is you know unsuitable or doesn't want the role or is you know i guess working in the city or whatever he's doing somebody else can take on that role in this particular instance that i mentioned the older brother's wife sort of says it did seem a little bit odd when i first moved into the household but now it's just normal he's like a brother to me now so I was like notable, but not just like, whoa, what's going on? It was yeah. like, oh yeah, a family could do this. 
Yeah, it's like unusual, but not just like wildly weird. We mentioned that this document is a sort of like oral law of both like Catholic and Muslim yeah. communities. Uh, so is there any difference in how Catholic and Muslim households would have this role or? I don't really know a heap about that, to be honest. Um, like as far as I can tell, I guess religious law is taking us secondary role to like customary law Mm. in this area so obviously we've talked about how it's both a catholic and a muslim area are they if you're living just say in a village in northern albania would you be living in like a mixed village or is it that some villages are catholic and some villages are muslim or it seems to me likely that you would have something like a majority catholic village but there might be a few muslim families within it or vice versa i guess or yeah vice versa but that's just sort of what i've inferred from reading Mm -hmm. you know people talking about their villages or talking about particular families they'll just comment that this was a muslim family and so the women covered their hair or whatever um things like that once a sworn virgin has you know cut their hair and worn masculine clothes some sworn virgins will adopt masculine names others continue to go by the name they were given at birth and similarly in some cases the family and friends will start using like masculine family titles and pronouns for them like uncle or brother-in-law or whatever in other cases they'll still call them aunt or sister or even within one person this isn't necessarily consistent some people will call them a brother and other people will call them grandmother and so some people will use a mix um antonia young recorded hearing a young child in one household asking their parent, why do we call Lula an aunt when she's a man? Okay, okay. That is translated from Albanian, but like English, Albanian typically has a masculine pronoun and a feminine pronoun, mm-hmm. and aunt and uncle as masculine and feminine words. I just kind of enjoyed the fact that the child obviously saw no conflict in, you know, she's a man, but it was a bit weird to them that she was an aunt as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if there will be any kind of general answer for this, but what sort of age do people take on this role? Like, is it something that somebody could take on from like a very young age or from puberty or generally an adult? Like any, any of those. Okay. There's actually, there's just a huge amount of diversity in the age people take on this role, the reasons they might take on the role, how they understand it in relation to their gender identity. Okay. So yeah, some people live as boys from infancy just because that's their preference. And maybe when they're older, they'll take vows. But But they've always been socially recognized as a boy in that case. Yeah, kind of. Um, And other people might take on the role because the marriage that their family has arranged for them doesn't appeal to them Mm. or because there's no heir available. I did see one historical instance of somebody taking on a masculine role after their husband died. Oh yeah. So there's just like many options for many reasons. Yeah, basically all you have to do is take a vow of chastity. I'm avoiding asking questions about the vow of chastity because I assume (laughs) we're going to have a whole bit where we talk about the vow of chastity. We are going to talk about the vow of chastity. Um, Can you stop being a sworn virgin if you change your mind? I did see, like, mention of one person doing this, but it's generally very socially frowned upon. Like, it's a transition you do and you have done. Okay. And it would be very kind of dishonourable to go back on your word. I guess if you've taken a vow saying, I'm going to do this, then you just have to stick to that vow forever? Yeah. Okay. So I assume that we've sort of subtextually been given the answer to this, but so a woman cannot be the head of her household if there are no available men, slash a woman cannot decide not to marry someone? No. Okay. No. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the sort of traditional place of a woman in Mm. a Northern Albanian household in a moment, but first I'm going to tell you about a potential origin for this 
Oh, okay. Role. It's not a hundred percent clear, obviously, when this began, because this is a society which largely has oral history and is very isolated. So the canon, you might mm-hmm. mention this. When was it codified, or do we know about when it kind of arose, or anything like that? So the most like sort of widely recognized version of the canon is called the canon of Lieke Dukajini, and he was a an Albanian nobleman in the 15th century, okay. who's largely attributed with kind of codifying and unifying what was previously a fairly like nebulous network of laws or yeah. traditions. Um, having said that, he's largely attributed with it, but he doesn't actually appear to have done anything um, <laughs> in this way. Like he was a sort of unifying figure uh, of yeah. sort of nationalism in the area in terms of he tried and failed to drive off Ottoman occupation a few mm. times. As a written document, it was first written down by Franciscan missionaries in the late 19th century and published in the early 20th. So it's very recently written down. Yes. There are a few other recognized, slightly different versions to the Canon of Lieka Dukagini. That was one of them that I quoted earlier, the um, Skanderberg version, which has a little more detail about Swan Virgins in it. It's not very clear, like, when this would have started, but there are a few things that we do know about the area that we can kind of put together. So, Inyak Zamputi, a, an ethnologist and a scholar of Albanian history writing in the mid-20th century, tells us that in some areas of northern Albania, women wearing short hair and clothing that would now be perceived as masculine until marriage was quite common. Okay. Until the arrival of Franciscan missionaries in the 15th century. He sort of implied that in this context, womanhood as a role is defined by marriage. So womanhood is equivalent to wifehood. And prior to this, people exist in a kind of gender neutral masculine category. Okay. Which men maintain even after marriage, but women become women when they marry. And thus that a chaste woman in this sort of framework is inherently a man. Okay. But I can't honestly tell you where Zamputi <laughs> got this information. I was about, wondering that. Um, about how, like, Balkan society was at that time. He's definitely, like, he's writing in the 20th century about something which presumably happened in, like, earlier than the 15th. I guess if he's saying before the arrival of Franciscans, it may be something that Franciscans noted when they arrived. Yeah, possibly, possibly. But, like, that's speculation, and obviously you don't have that source to hand. When the Franciscan missionaries arrived, one of the main things they tried to do was discourage very young arranged marriages, which were quite common in the area, and sort of shore up the rights of women, mm-hmm. who were, like, largely considered as just, like, men's property at this time, which frankly seems like a bizarre thing for the Catholic Church to do. I was going to say, that seems like a bit of a plot twist. But... I, yeah, yeah, I was about to say that. Yeah, that's, that's unusual. Yeah, and they seem to have done a lot of sort of navigating, keeping the male leaders of the community on side, as well as trying to allow for women who don't want to get married to have somewhere to go, which just seems insane. And I don't really know why Franciscans did this in this context. Do you um, know, like, about how many Franciscans were arriving? Like... 
Is it possible that there was just kind of like one or two Franciscans and they happened to have these beliefs? Yeah, it's possible that it was just a small group of Franciscans. Like five decent Franciscans. Um, yeah, and they were just like, no, we're going to we're gonna work this out. And it wasn't necessarily the stance of the church. Yeah, so. this is true. Um, later on, so the Franciscan missionaries who arrived tried to sort of set up monasteries for women who wanted to become nuns because this allowed them to essentially, you know, reject marriage and have a existence as a single woman. After some time, the Pope wrote to them and were like, in order to keep Albanian society in general Catholic, we can't allow you to keep setting up communities where women can live independently of men. Please stop that. Okay, so it was possibly some uh, rogue Franciscans. Rogue yeah, Franciscans. <laughs> so some rogue Franciscans were doing that. I guess if you have to have missionaries, having rogue ones that are like slightly like 2% more decent than most <laughs> yeah. is about as best as you're going to get. Yeah. Um, and so the kind of compromise that they arrived at was that women could continue to swear chastity and devote themselves to God, but would live in their family homes rather than in a separate community. Okay, so you're just like a nun who hasn't left your own yeah. family. Okay. Thus, the, so the kind of stay-at-home nun situation. <laughs> <laughs> Did you come up with that or just got no, that was me. That's just what's in my notes. Yes. <laughs> so we have a kind of stay-at-home nun situation, and that's kind of merged with what seems to be an already existing concept of an unmarried woman having a kind of implicit masculinity to create this thing where... So the vow of chastity may actually come out of the Catholic idea of a nun then. Yes, and I have this wild quote which I'm going to give you. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> um, so yeah, we get this thing where a woman's decision to remain unmarried and thus be recognised as a man is something which would often be consecrated by a priest in the 19th century. So Branislav Nusic, a Serbian author visiting Northern Albania in 1894, described a like sworn virgin ceremony. And what he says is, the girl goes to the priest who cuts her hair, celebrates a mass, dresses her in male attire and gives her a male name. When the service is over, the priest solemnly informs the attendants why such and such a girl has decided to remain virginal and what name he has chosen and he that henceforth everyone has to consider her a male. This male carries a gun afterwards and is a Catholic nun. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so like... <laughs> Stay at home nun with a gun. <laughs> it's interesting because nuns do also traditionally take male names when they become nuns. They do. do they? What? Yeah. yeah, nuns do take male names. Anne Rice didn't tell me about this. It's true. Not well. I don't know if it's the case that like now they don't, but they used to, or that it was never that all of them did. But like we have an aunt, we had an aunt called Francois, which is okay. a male name. Yeah. Because she's a nun. Is this why it's Sister Michael and Dairy Girl? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's why nuns have male names. Often, yeah, they'll often take like male saints' names and that kind of thing. What's up with that? I don't know. It's just what they do. <laughs> yeah. I just don't know. <laughs> okay. So whether or not, you know, obviously there's more to the history of this role than that, but I can definitely see how the sort of merging with Catholicism mm. has allowed it continuing legitimacy longer than it might have had otherwise. Mm, yeah, I guess I'm just thinking it's like very convenient that it has this overlap with Catholicism where a nun decides to not marry a man and a nun decides to take a male name. Yeah. And an Albanian sworn virgin also does these things. Yeah, and um, there are also a lot of like sort of Catholic stories about holy women who you know, swear chastity and, uh, and refuse marriage. Refuse marriage and are like above the weaknesses of the flesh. 
there's that one saint that grows a beard because she doesn't want to get married. Yeah. I don't know if we know about her. Yeah, somebody mentioned her actually in one of the things I read. Yeah, I can't think of her name right now. Yeah, so I guess this is not sort of alien to Catholic understandings of masculinity and chastity and womanhood. Yeah. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Eli's face is doing some things. Jewish women don't get to take chastity vows. Chastity isn't a thing. It's just not an option. Nah. I mean, I guess it's an option, but it's not, like, advised. (laughs) It's not, like, a sort of institutionally admired option. No. What about men? Do Jewish men get to take, like... No. That's just not a thing No, it's laid out in the Talmud how uh, often a man is obliged to have sex with his wife in order to satisfy her and spy, like, different professions. Um, (laughs) Literally, like, if you're a sailor, you only have to do it every six months. I mean, like, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you're a, a, like, Talmud scholar this often, it's a mitzvah to have uh, sex on the Sabbath. As in you, like, you should have sex on the Sabbath? Yeah, you should. It's a mitzvah, yeah. Oh, okay. It's a commandment. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's like the sort of typical like uh, sleazy uh, Jewish male college student pickup. By the way, it's like, hey, baby, it's a mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> That's also just like so different to like Catholic approaches to sex. Yeah, it's like stuff like this is that makes me kind of be like, mm, is it though? When everyone's like, you know, the Judeo-Christian approach, I'm, like, I'm oh, not convinced yeah, those no. two traditions share no. anything. No, no. I remember when I was doing our episode ages ago on um, Arab medieval queer women and I just got up to a bit in a book where I was like you know in Islam sex isn't considered like at all sinful and it's like a good thing that you should do and I was like sex Religions isn't considered do this. sinful <laughs> I was like when the, this, when this the Catholic education hits <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like I was like low-key assumed that like society had just agreed on this but Christian no, it was just yeah it was yeah. just Christian no, it's too just, it's just y'all <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Which I guess does beg the question again of how the Catholic and the Muslim members of this community understood these things differently. Yeah. Like, yeah. I get that you don't know, and that's fine, but it is interesting to consider. I didn't find, unfortunately, I read like I read an article that was like Franciscan friars and Albanian sworn virgins, which gave me a bunch hmm. of this information, and I didn't find any comparative document about how it interacted with like Islamic practices. Yeah. What I'm wondering then is what, what are Muslim approaches to chastity yeah and unfortunately i don't know <laughs> no one on this podcast is gonna know no <laughs> yeah it'll be interesting to consider in this context this has been a good chat and unfortunately <laughs> it's been a good chat that has concluded nothing the muslim part of albania is generally the south oh, okay um, so it's possible then that like muslim families have moved into the north mm-hmm. and i don't know to what extent they would adopt the customs but i also again don't know for sure so, okay. Like how much is like the religion moving mm. and how much is like people moving kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There are Muslim sworn okay. virgins. Okay. I've like seen them mentioned, just not in as much detail mm. as some of my like particular case studies. Mm. Okay, guess that's like good enough. Probably. Yeah, <laughs> like I can confirm that they exist and that there's discussion of sworn virgins in academic books about Islam and gender, but mm. I didn't find the same like I guess level of. There's not a connection you can draw between, between the religion and the sworn virgin the same way you can with Catholicism. Yeah. So there are a number of reasons why a woman might assume the role of a man in Albanian society that don't necessarily have to do with personal gender identity. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit before mm-hmm. we got to talking about, you know, trans men, I guess. <laughs> we can all sense it coming. <laughs> yeah. We are going to talk about trans men. Heavily foreshadowed. I just want to be yeah. like clear that there's there are other reasons why people might do this. 
And there were definitely academics I read who were like, yeah, swan virginity has nothing to do with a person's gender identity. Not at all. They're just doing this for like practical social reasons. And I was like, really? We have actual quotes from people countering you. You quoted them in your article. (laughs) And then you just ignored them. Yeah. As we talked about before, I briefly alluded to when Eli asked the position of a woman in a traditional Albanian household. So a traditional Albanian household will be structured with like a patriarch at the top and his wife and then his children. So his daughters will move to their husband's houses when they marry and his sons will remain and their wives will move in. Mm-hmm. And then they'll have children. And so that's kind of the traditional Albanian household is this extended family of like a pair of grandparents and their, their sons. sons and their sons' families. Okay. The canon is very strict about the distinction between a man and a woman. It like lists appropriate household tasks for each of them. Mm-hmm. It considers women the property of their fathers and then their husbands and it gives them very few personal rights other than they have the right to expect, you know, food and clothing from their husbands, basically. A wife's duties are listed thus. To preserve the honour of her husband, to serve her husband in an unblemished manner, to submit to his domination, to fulfil her conjugal duties, to raise and nurture her children with honour, to keep clothes and shoes in good order, and not to interfere in the betrothals of her sons and daughters. Not to interfere in the betrothals of her sons and daughters? Yes. So essentially, the father will make decisions about appropriate marriages for his children, and it's not on the mother to have input into that. I don't want to derail us once more, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) but you mentioned that these, the canon was first actually written down by Franciscans. Yes. I wonder how much of a Franciscan bent has been put on it in the writing down. It's very hard to say, but it continues to be recognized as a significant document in its written form in Albania now. So I guess there perhaps wasn't so much deviation between the already recognized oral form and the written form yeah so i would assume there was you know some deviation the franciscans probably put their overlay on it but i would yeah i would guess it hasn't been changed to the extent that people no longer recognize that written form um Mm -hmm. as discussed some versions do mention like sworn virgins but they're just nuns they're just nuns i guess (laughs) nuns with guns (laughs) so generally as you noticed, marriages are arranged by the parents of two children. Specifically the father. Specifically the father. Like, the mother's input is not, you know, specifically listed in the canon, but I would guess that usually she is able to say something about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that he has the final decision. They're usually between neighbouring villages rather than within a village. Albanian communities have very strong ideas about sort of avoiding patrilineal incest. So a woman will move out of her village to marry a man from another area. Oh, yeah. It's seen as less of a concern if the relation is between the mothers. So if, for example, like two women were like cousins, it would be fine for their kids to marry. But if two men were cousins, it wouldn't yeah, be fine. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. The general understanding is that like the man is providing genetic material for the child and the woman is nurturing it in her womb. I see. (laughs) So that's like... We know that to be false. (laughs) We do. What happens if they have like a woman with red hair and then the baby has red hair and the man doesn't have red hair? Do they never stop and be like, wait a gosh darn minute, you've done something here? (laughs) Why don't they have pirate squares is what I'm asking. (laughs) 
Who knows? Know, that's, um, that's a common enough understanding of that. I think the ancient Greeks had it. As yeah, well. yeah, so, yeah. It's which not... I guess is quite close by in the scheme of things. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. I guess that's true. In that like Albanian household that I described, it's quite hierarchical, and the lowest position is inhabited by a new wife who hasn't yet borne anyone a son. Oh yeah. Okay. Which essentially means that if somebody, if a girl is getting married, she's moving out of her home, away from her village, away from her family, into like a large household of strangers where she's assuming like the worst position. Mm. That's a garbage life. Yeah. And in addition to this, as I said, women are often married very young. How young? Like teens, middle late teens. Um, And the infant mortality rate was quite high, which provided a lot of women with a reason to sort of say, frankly, sex is not that big a thing to lose. I would rather just not. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is something that a lot of the sworn virgins I saw interviewed expressed. They were like, if I was growing up in Albania today, I might have made a different decision. Mm -hmm. But Mm. at the time, this just made sense and I don't regret it at all. So we mentioned that um, people can do this sort of whenever in their lives. If one of them got married and a year in it was bad. I didn't ever see that being mentioned. I doubt you can get unmarried. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if your husband were to die, then perhaps. But if your husband were to die, you could become a sworn virgin. Okay. The same circumstances that make marriage an intimidating and potentially undesirable prospect for a young woman also make it potentially undesirable for her parent, as, you know, when their daughter marries, as well as losing a beloved child, they lose a source of household labor, um, they have to pay the expense of a dowry, and thus, especially in a household with a number of daughters, the parent has some incentive to assign masculine roles to one or two of their daughters. So they get to keep them. Yeah, so that they get to keep some children to support them in their old age. This is like quite a similar thing to what we saw when we talked about Zuni culture recently, where um, women are the ones who stay home in their house and men are the ones that leave. Yeah. And therefore it was seen as desirable to have daughters or for somebody who was assigned male at birth to take an alarmant role, so a more feminine role in order to stay in and continue to contribute to their household. Yeah. So it's kind of the opposite thing, but kind of also the same thing. Yeah. So yeah, then there are there are reasons why a parent might want to encourage their child to assume a male role and hence stay in the household. For example, Gremo quoted the following anecdote from Serbian ethnologist Mirkos Bajaktarovic, who met sworn virgin Jerja in 1939. Betrothed at the age of 18, Jerja started preparing the wedding gifts. She noticed that her mother, whose third child and eldest daughter she was, watched her doing the needlework for the presents with sadness. Mother, it looks as if you're not glad that I'm getting married. On this question from Jerja, the mother replied affirmatively, saying, because if you get married, I'll be left alone, but if you stay with me, I'll have a son. On hearing those words, Georgia threw down her embroidery. She came to the decision to stay in her parental house and changed her appearance by cutting off her hair, taking a shepherd's crook and putting on a black cap and a coat. However, she kept her skirt. Oh, okay. That was, like, very fairy tale esque Yeah, I was talking about that. Um, yeah. yeah. So in Georgia's case, she's kind of merged aspects of masculinity and femininity in yeah. keeping her skirt. Yeah, and I did want to keep that in because it's something generally that I noticed, that it's not necessarily that somebody who was previously inhabiting a woman's role becomes a man wholeheartedly. Sometimes people do sort of comfortably inhabit these, I guess, in-between roles where they'll, you know, they'll do some masculine tasks around the home, but they'll also do some, like, typically female tasks or things like that. So I'm sure that 
that sort of thing exists. And yeah. it makes sense that some of these people will just be like women who didn't want to get married, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that the mother or the like parents might have had a hand in that. I'm not questioning that that exists. Yeah. But I am a little like skeptical of like potential individual times that an ethnologist who ever assigned it. Like if it's coming from that person saying that. Yeah. Okay. But I like it just reminds me of how uh, people might look at like a modern or relatively modern trend person and kind of say this happened because like her parents dressed her up as a girl instead of a boy when they were a child and things like that yeah of people trying to like assign an etiology to something that mm. does not make sense to them yeah and so yeah. i just wanted to like voice that skepticism no that's a reasonable thing to say and if it was i guess the only example i'd seen of somebody being like i did this for my family or with the encourage of encouragement of my parents i probably wouldn't have included that story Mm. but it is something that like people have said Um, so this is representative of several examples you saw yeah having said that there are definitely also examples that i'll talk about later where both the parents encouraged it and the sworn virgin themselves was very adamant in saying i always felt like a man Mm. Mm. yeah Mm. my parents were just you know encouraging that yeah yeah and I really don't mean to suggest that like the former kind doesn't exist or that that's yeah. like if that's what that person has said, then I will accept what they've said. I don't want to be like what these sociologists, etc., are, but to the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. I guess I wouldn't be that surprised if various academics saw that explanation given by some and then extended that to the group. Oh yeah, and I absolutely did see mm-hmm. academics be like, this has nothing to do with gender yeah. identity. People did this to assume like a necessary role yes. in their community yeah. and their they're not trans at all. What are you talking about? Yeah. See, look at Georgia. <laughs> yeah, see, look at Georgia. And then, bizarrely, they would still be happy to quote somebody else saying, you know, later in their article, I always felt like a man nature was mistaken. And they were like, cool, seems like a woman who wants to be a shepherd to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, we've seen that before. There's like any time when you have someone assigned to female at birth who takes on a male social role, there's a big red button there that everyone is very happy to punch and that button is labelled, they had to do it because of cultural misogyny. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and like sometimes I did. It's true. Yeah. There's a final non-trans reason that I'm going to bring up. <laughs> why somebody might choose to like inhabit a male social role in spite of identifying personally as a woman that's usually the lack of an heir in the house to continue the male line as opposed to like to to care for their parents so another part of the canon which is relevant to the role of the sworn virgin but doesn't actually refer to it directly is what is generally called in english the blood feud um, which is wildly dramatic and frankly is is wildly dramatic in reality as well (laughs) so it's not misnamed it's not misnamed it is just a blood blood feud feud. Um, okay i don't know if any of you had ever heard anything about rural albania before this no but if you ever had it would have been about blood feuds according to the canon if a man is murdered then the family of the victim has the right to murder the murderer but then does the family of the murderer have the right to murder the other family like well is it settled then technically it should be settled then but that requires the family of the murderer to agree that they were in the wrong assuming that 
you know, everyone agrees at that point that it's settled, then it's settled. But if the murderer's family feels that the murder was justified in the circumstances or they're like the issue which led to the murder remains and hasn't been resolved, often it was like land disputes, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. then they'll feel the right to retaliate against the family mm-hmm. of the victim yeah. again. Yeah, so it's exactly that, what you think a blood feud Yeah, is. in that circumstance, they're entitled to kill any adult man in the family. So women and children are exempt. And that can essentially go on forever until they've resolved the original dispute. So if all the men in your family have been killed, you can become a man? Is, is yeah. this where we're going? Okay. Yeah, basically. Does that that's... not seem like an undesirable option at that point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you kill? It's sort of... It doesn't... You can... A sworn virgin can be involved in a blood feud. Okay, so it, um, you're kind of stepping in and being like, they're all dead, I'm next, and taking yeah, over Yeah, it does seem, I guess, like an undesirable thing because you're kind of stepping into the firing line but there's a lot of sort of family honor riding on your family avenging yeah 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 yeah. and so it's one of those things like it sort of makes sense socially in the context that somebody has to step up and fulfill that role at the time we're largely talking about which is like late 19th early 20th century this is very widespread um okay that's unfortunate today estimates have it that there are maybe 600 families in albania involved in one of these feuds oh, oh okay. 600 um, families currently involved currently. in a blood feud yeah there were articles i read which were sort of like this you know this 16 year old boy will not leave his home because he will probably get murdered and it was an article where they interviewed the teacher who went to his house to teach him kind of thing oh, okay. um so yeah. it's just kind of an accepted part of society that they're just used to working around yeah basically That's bizarre and sorry i have another question yeah how long might a blood feud continue for is it just like a week or a month of just like no it's like violence or just like years of these two families generations yeah like during the communist era the government tried very hard to suppress blood feuds at the fall of communism people like revived their blood feuds okay there are a lot of like sort of not-for-profit groups working in albania now who work to try and like mediate blood feuds Mm. yeah um and they're often run by people who at some point were involved in one and were like i never want to do that again no one should ever do that nonsense again and honia young claimed though i'm not sure where she got this number that 30 percent of men in northern Albania died violent deaths in the 1920s. 30%. Like, just as a cause of death, 30% were violent, which... Regardless of, I guess, whether that number is accurate, I guess kind of gives you an idea of how... The kind of scale. The kind of scale we're talking about. Which meant it was not uncommon for an Albanian household to just run out of men. Okay. So you said that um, someone might become a sworn virgin in order to carry on the family line in this case. I assume you mean by just, like, being a man functionally that exists in this household. Yeah. What happens after them? This is something that several people raised. They were like, people sort of say this was their justification but this seems like a temporary solution that yeah. only gives you one more generation yeah that just gives you and one more man like that person isn't gonna have sons that yeah and it's possible that then maybe we're waiting for i don't know like we're waiting for a sister to have a son at which point it can pass to somebody even if they're not directly involved but or it's would, possible that that's just like a spurious justification mm. but, but it was one the... that came up a lot um <laughs> wouldn't that on. we're about to ask the same 
same question. Well, yeah. Wouldn't the sister, if a sister was about to get married and have a child, wouldn't she go to the other person's family, yeah. the husband's family, and then the child would belong to that family, though? Yeah, and yeah. I wonder whether the, I guess, property of the, the family would go to the other family then. I'm not really sure. I mean, um, I guess... It also might just be that it was worth it as a temporary sure. role yeah. because there were... Women were so limited in the sort of household work they could do and the outside the housework mm. they would do that the sort of short term you need somebody to fill that space yeah i guess also if we're talking about a feud like as a matter of honor you don't want to be like oh well we're done we've got no one left yeah i was also going to say like we said that children were exempt from this so it could be that there's a bunch of boys oh yeah yeah that's that's also true that's also true in which case somebody still has to be the head of the house 15 years the problem is solved yeah we just need a man in the meantime having done that i've given you all the like potential reasons why somebody might want to inhabit a male social role without being a man so now let's talk about being a man (laughs) so yeah i'd like to talk now about how sworn virgins perceived their own identities and how their communities perceived their identities on account of the vast range like the vast diversity of personal experiences that I came across here I basically decided that the best thing to do was to provide you with a handful of contrasting views to sort of Mm. give you a idea of some of the possibilities so we're going to do some case studies yeah we're going to do some little case studies I would like to note again which I mentioned earlier that anthropologists have generally only been able to find sworn virgins whose history and gender assigned at birth are known by their community. Mm. And yeah. yeah, it's likely that more exist too. It's not known or it's only known by a small group of people or they just don't want to talk about it. And so nobody passes their name on when somebody comes and is like, hi, I'm an anthropologist. That's fair. The first one I wanted to give you, his name is Stana Cherovic. He was the youngest of five children. The older four were all girls. From a young age, he was encouraged by his parents to consider himself their son, but he was also very clear when interviewers spoke to him that he felt like a boy from the outset. He always remembered preferring to dress in men's clothing, that kind of thing. Well, that's deeply convenient. Yeah. <laughs> At least for everyone involved. Um, I mean, I guess that is a factor. If the parents are being like, which of our five children will we encourage to, like, fulfill the role of a son? I maybe guess the one that's kind of already a son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah, the yes. son. Um, yeah. Yeah, and he talked a little bit about, like, learning how to shoot a rifle and learning how to smoke from his father in sort of single digits age. <laughs> Smoking is, like, and guns, basically, like very widespread mm-hmm. and very like normalized well that is both school. deeply wholesome and also not at all wholesome yeah when he reached adulthood he made vows of chastity and promised his father that he would remain as his son in the household okay in old age stana lived with two of his sisters who had also incidentally remained unmarried mm-hmm. but as women and Stana assumed masculine roles around the property such as like chopping wood mowing lawns and keeping the garden while his sisters took up the roles indoors sort of cooking cleaning making clothes that kind of thing Stana was known to attend local dances and go drinking with friends who were generally other men okay Um, yeah and when interviewed in 1984 and this is like the clearest possible thing that I can say (laughs) Stana consistently used masculine words to describe himself and said most of all I detest being a female nature was mistaken okay so now that we've done all that other stuff there are definitely trans men here sure yeah yeah no one's shocked yeah all the anthropologists are shocked but we've established that they're like inadequate so yeah we're not shocked yeah we're not at all shocked Um, so i assume that the answer is going to be masculine but 
Stana is a masculine name. No, Stana is a feminine name. Ah, oh, okay. Um, Stana just never changed his name. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, which is something which does seem to happen quite often. Mm. They just have a name and they just stick with the name. Cool. Or sometimes they'll have a name. Somebody did uh, i don't have it written here there was a like a masculine a masculinized nickname that some of stana's friends called him okay but it wasn't like his name that he went by all the time so it, it might just... be like if you were called samantha but you went by sam as a kind of masculine yeah yeah, yeah. but yeah no stana went by stana and seems to be happy being called stana okay mm. i mean the significance of the name change is like in say our society is obviously culturally yeah. relative yeah, yeah yeah so i don't think that implies anything inherently no yeah. absolutely but it just kind of i guess surprised me because it's such a thing in our society yeah yeah, yeah. That, like you changed your name to match your gender but a lot of these people just kind of mm. stuck well, with I mean, the name they had especially if you consider like the terminology that's become current of like dead name um but you know which very much implies this sort of previous self that is dead yeah now yeah. whoever um, yeah, which and is I guess, like a common enough narrative in our society, but yeah, perhaps less so. In- I guess part of the thing is that there's no previous Stana who who is dead. Like Stana has been kind of inhabiting this role from very yeah, young. That's true. Yeah, reached adulthood, and he was like, "Yep, I am still a man." And his parents were like, "Great, please chop some wood. Please chop some wood." And that's what <laughs> happened. Yeah, please chop some wood, and then I'll show you how to shoot a gun. Thank you, my nine year old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another one of the case studies I want to give you is their name is Pasha or Pasha. One of these is feminine, one of these is masculine. In the interview that I read, they didn't seem to express any particular preference, so I can't really tell okay. what they would have preferred. I don't think I can reliably make either of those vowel sounds consistent. Either. Anyway, so yeah, <laughs> whatever we say, it'll probably be yeah. Like, <laughs> either one, they didn't seem to like mind strongly, and they spoke about themselves both as a woman and as a man quite openly okay so i've chosen to use they as a pronoun for them sure but makes sense that's not really an option in albanian still today yeah as far as i as far as i know i I know that say like spanish for example yeah it's kind of like reverse engineering one even though the language doesn't really allow for it yeah 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 yeah. um i assume there are albanians who are thinking about this yeah albanians have the internet so (laughs) yeah like yeah yeah no there absolutely are and we could probably find out but as far as I can see, Albanian is quite a gendered language to the point where, like, adjectives you say have to agree with your gender kind of oh, thing. Yeah. So, yeah. like, a lot of romance languages. Yeah, exactly. And um, mm. there was one interesting paper I read where the author basically went and interviewed a bunch of sworn virgins and their families and did kind of quantitative analysis oh, okay. of how much, like, how much of the language they used was masculine mm. and how much of it was feminine, and divided that up by whether it was a sworn virgin talking about themselves or uh-huh. somebody close to them or like an acquaintance who didn't know them particularly well. The category, obviously, which was most consistent in using masculine language was sworn virgins speaking about themselves. You say obviously, but like... Oh, okay. I don't necessarily think that would be obvious. Okay. Like, it definitely still wasn't 100%. It was like half and half, and people were inconsistent talking about themselves as well. Okay. People's close families tended towards feminine. I guess But that... friends they had outside the home leaned a little bit more masculine. I guess um, perhaps it's because their close families might have grown up with them before they yeah. had taken on that role. So yeah, that was an interesting article. Hmm, that is interesting. But yeah, as for Pasha, 
Pasha, whichever. Pasha chose to make vows of chastity at the age of 20 after their father was killed as part of a blood feud. They did have four brothers, however, at the time their brothers were involved in the anti-communist resistance and the remaining living brothers were in prison. In that context, this allowed Pasha to travel alone, to take jobs in masculine fields, so they worked in construction Mm -hmm. a lot, and to take charge of their household in the absence of another patriarch. But they remain in this position today. Which I do wonder what happened if any of their brothers came home. Yeah, Yeah. I never found out if any of their brothers made it back and if so what that conversation was like did they come back and Pasha was like yeah sorry I'm dad now (laughs) (laughs) sorry did you mention if Pasha was the youngest or the oldest or just kind of in the middle I didn't mention I don't know okay I'm just imagining sorry one of them this is a very serious situation I just make it terrible joke about where just like one of their brothers like comes home from the war essentially yeah. comes in and is like I'm so glad to be home I'm so tired and then Pasha just swings around the corner and is like hi tired I'm dad <laughs> yeah presumably that's exactly what happened <laughs> yes so Pasha said that they didn't regret their decision to become a man but they speculated that in today's society they might have made a different one Back then, they said it was better to be a man because a woman and an animal were considered the same thing. Now Albanian women have equal rights with men and are even more powerful sometimes. I think today it might be fun to be a woman. (laughs) (laughs) I like that they said it might be fun. Might give that a shot. They also commented that being a woman made them a more respectful and compassionate man. Oh, okay. Interesting. Hmm. Which, yeah, I thought it was interesting that they just sort of quite comfortably said, I'm a woman and I'm a man several times in this interview. Yeah. And they did talk about their, like, standing up to other men when they made misogynistic remarks and that kind of thing because they felt they had more empathy with the situation of women. The last one that I want to talk about is Lula. I mentioned Lula earlier. Lula was that person whose nieces and nephews asked their parents Um, why their aunt was a man. Right. Or rather why this person was called their aunt. When she was a man. When she was clearly a man. Lula was born as the youngest child in a family of ten. One of the others was a boy. There was initially a second boy who died in, like, infancy. Mm -hmm. For as long as Lula can remember, though, he has dressed and behaved as a boy. One of Lula's older sisters said about him, We did try to dress Lula in skirts, but she always refused. He was also keen to avoid arranged marriage as a child. He mentioned running away into the hills anytime he thought someone might be visiting to discuss his betrothal with his parents. He didn't specifically mention taking vows of chastity, but after his father passed away, it became obvious that Lula was far more suited to the role of household head than his older brother, and so Lula became the patriarch and took charge of like trading family produce at markets and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. In spite of the family generally referring to Lula as Aunt Lula, they seem to accept him as a man in the household. Lula's sister-in-law, as I said, said, I found the situation odd when I was first married, but now Lula is like a brother to me. And as far as Lula's decision to reject marriage and live as a man goes, he said, I wouldn't have done it any other way. So, yeah, those are just, I guess, three examples of people talking about their reasons for making those decisions and how they feel about themselves. Most of the actual interviews I read, sworn virgins generally said that they were men, but they didn't seem to speak about that in a way that excluded also being a woman. Yeah, I was just going to say, I guess Pasha showed us that, like, it could be both. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I guess we could get into a discussion at this point about what gender is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is, like in Albanian society at this time in particular, like to what extent yeah. it's an identity and to what extent it's a social role that you fulfill and so forth. And I think like the answer is it's both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is worth noting as well, I guess, that most of these people like are being interviewed probably in the 90s but they made these decisions like 50 years earlier Mm -hmm. and whether that would have changed the way that they thought about themselves over that time oh yeah Um, okay whether they've become i don't know more comfortable with themselves as a man or whether they've become more comfortable with themselves as a woman with changing society it's interesting how changing society can open up both of those possibilities so much Yeah, yeah 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 The last thing I'd like to talk about before we do, like, final discussion is the vow of chastity. Yeah, all right, I guess we might as well. (laughs) We knew it had to happen. We knew that that had to happen. And just the sexuality of Mm -hmm. sworn virgins generally. Our friend Renee Grimaud. I see we're about to roast Grimaud. We are. (laughs) We are about to roast him. I recognise the tone. Was very much like, it's not clear whether the actual vow is about just rejecting matrimony or whether it's a vow about rejecting sex or together but obviously these people can't possibly have been having heterosexual sex because the risk of getting pregnant is far too great which frankly just says so much about his lack of imagination during sex like yeah also like i don't trust renee to know what contraceptives were available yeah like what traditional contraceptives for example yeah that's true that's true as well um yeah i mean also frankly no matter how great the risk of contraception people have always just like rolled that dice that's true yeah you know that's just a fact about people (laughs) renee was very much like people were not doing this or doing this very little because it just wouldn't have been worth the risk that just doesn't make sense (laughs) and i was like i don't think so renee that's not what we know about people there are though very few allusions to sexuality in research about sworn virgins or interviews with them the culture of northern albania is traditionally very private about sex in the first place and often these people are like even more private about it than the general public would be because they feel like they're being grilled about their gender or grilled about their sexuality and they don't Mm. want to be part of that Um, i did read one article where I'm trying to think of the journalist's name, but like he'd got the name and location of a sworn virgin from somebody. And he and his translator drove up to the sworn virgin's town and went to their house. And they pretty much came out of the house and they were like, if you're here to ask me if I'm a lesbian, go away. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, uh, this again. Yeah. Um, they threw the car into reverse and they <laughs> But what we do know. What I did manage to find suggests, and in minimal detail, suggests a wide variety of sexual experiences. That isn't surprising. Which is not at all surprising. The only example I saw of a sworn virgin reversing their vow was a woman named Fadima, who was called Fadet when she lived as a man, who resumed living as a woman in her late 20s after she met a man that she wanted to marry, and they got married and had several children. Okay. Um, so that's the only instance that I found of somebody, like, openly reversing their vow of chastity. Mm-hmm. So at least one swan version was attracted to men. Do we know about this person's identity, or do we just know that they decided they wanted to marry a man and therefore... We know that they lived as a woman. 
after they got married and that's really all that mm-hmm. I can tell you. Yeah. Um, I guess I just don't feel like that guarantees them being a woman. No. That's true. I, I want guess to that's true. That's the only option to marry the person they yeah. want to marry. Like, that's this person true. could have identified as a man or, like, something else. Something else, yeah. Been like, well, I'm in love with this man and I want kids, so I'm just going like, to do it. So this is the yeah. easiest way. Like, yeah. I think if we're going to discuss the possibility of women deciding to live as men for the benefits that yeah. gives them... Yeah, yeah, no, that's yeah. absolutely true. Like, Fadima could have been doing that for, yeah, yeah. for yeah. any reason. Like, I guess there's no option really for a sworn virgin to marry and have a family. Yeah, There have, like, there were sworn virgins who, like, fostered children oh, okay. and that kind oh, okay. of thing. Often, like, the children of relatives who had died oh, or yeah. something like that. And even if they didn't, because of the way Albanian households are structured... They're generally mm. living in a household with, with their children. siblings and their siblings' children oh, yeah. anyway. But yeah, no, we are aware that like at least one sworn virgin was interested in men and wanted to have sex with them. And okay. That's all we can say about <laughs> that part. Um, on the other hand, a lot of men who were interviewed about their sworn virgin friends remembered them making like sort of sexual comments in passing about women when they were talking in groups of men just in that sort of very like i guess casual as men do as yeah. men do way like one quote that somebody mentioned remembering stana saying to them was oh if i could somehow drive that daughter of milovan into a corner come across her in seclusion Okay. Men talking about women. Yeah. 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 Which it's very hard to tell, I guess, in that context, Mm. whether that's an expression of sexual attraction or an expression of masculinity. Yeah. 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 I assume for some people it was an expression of sexual attraction, and for others it was just that's how. Yeah. 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 Both. Yeah. Yeah, I read another interview with a sworn virgin named Stemmer who said when they were asked about whether they felt that they'd missed out on marriage and what kind of life they might have had if they'd been Mm. married said i suppose if i'd got married i would have married a traditional albanian woman okay Um, okay which is i guess a much more a much more easy to read i feel comment than those sort of like locker room talk comments yeah yeah so they are seeing themselves in the role of a man who has taken a vow of chastity rather than in the role of a woman who has taken yeah yeah but then again it's also hard to say whether they are expressing that because they're like, I'm attracted to women or whether it's because they are a man. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you and know, that's, that's what part men of do. The, the man's role. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you know of any who talked about chastity itself appealing to them? Yes. Because we've talked about rejecting marriage, but what about rejecting sex? Several people talked about lack of sexual desire. They didn't often say that that had been something that appealed to them about the life. Mm-hmm. But when they were asked about their sexual desires and whether the vow of chastity had been difficult for them, one sworn virgin, Haki, said, I've always been like an old woman without sexual feelings. Okay. Another, and this isn't a direct quote, this is something a woman said about her sworn virgin relative, Mm -hmm. said, he has no sexual interest, even though he used to be very attractive. (laughs) Used to be? (laughs) He was like elderly. I'm sure. 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 It still sounds a little bit like Gerrit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was something several people said when they were asked about their vows of chastity. They would be like clear to be specific that they were very attractive in their youth and this just hadn't been (laughs) something they wanted. It was like, I could have had sex. But I didn't want to. But I didn't want to or this life was better. Otherwise, a lot of them just describe sex as a small thing to give up. One sworn virgin said, 
five minutes of pleasure is a small price to pay for a lifetime of slavery. And just in general, the culture of the Albanian mountains puts very little emphasis on the idea of sex as a like pleasurable or a recreational act. Okay. So men are kind of expected to have a sex drive, but to give in to your sex drive is an unmasculine thing to do. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, oh, yeah. That attitude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> out, outside of, I guess, outside of... You your know, marriage. Your marriage, outside of for procreation and discussion of like women having sexual desire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes, they have the babies. <laughs> yep. A lot of researchers in the face of this tried to ask sworn virgins or people who knew sworn virgins mm-hmm. about whether they were attracted to women, whether being a sworn virgin was being a lesbian. This is something that comes up a fair mm-hmm. bit. I'm, yeah. I'm surprised. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And were often just faced with like confusion, whether it was confusion about why you would conflate a sworn virgin with a lesbian or confusion about women having sexual desires for each other. Both of these came up. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess we've talked about how researchers might struggle to communicate who they're even looking for because there's no one yeah. way to talk about sworn virgins. How are they communicating lesbianism? Like, yeah. And if you're asking about lesbianism, does the person you, you're asking understand? Because they're like, you're asking about women being attracted to women, but we're talking about Hucky, he's a man or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I Depending like, on how they perceive a sworn yeah. virgin's gender themselves. There's lots of ways this communication could break down Just before we ever wrong. discover <laughs> who this yeah. person may be attracted to. Yeah, and beyond that, there's an extent to which people will just like refuse to answer things they find it inappropriate to ask or claim they know nothing about it because talking mm. about lesbians is just not done. I mean, I yeah. think that we, it was a good example you gave before where the journalist turned up at this person's house and was like, Ugh, are you here to ask me if I'm a lesbian? Like, it would be very frustrating yeah. Yeah. if these people were coming into your village all the time like, oh, this one, so we're here to check if you're a lesbian. And you'd be like, ah, oh, this again. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. What is a lesbian? Renee Gremo does mention having heard of a case of a sworn virgin who moved in with a close friend who was another sworn virgin and they vowed blood sistership to each other. And having done that, lived their lives together and organized for their property to be passed on to the other upon okay. their death. So they okay. could be gay, they could be lesbian, they could be completely platonic. You're like, who knows? Anything at all. <laughs> they Something could be he- heterosexual. True. I mean, <laughs> yeah, true. <they're> <laughs> we just don't <laughs> they know. Could, they could be literally anything. All right. But well, that, that was pretty much the only allusion yeah. to sworn virgins in a relationship while they were, like, sworn virgins mm-hmm. okay. that I could find. Okay, well, that elucidates nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Anything could have happened. Yes. Yeah. Renee did mention that people he spoke to in the village sometimes referred to the couple as lesbians. Um, oh, okay. But he interpreted that as kind of an overlay of a more modern understanding of sexuality on a traditional Albanian, like a traditional oh, yeah. cultural practice. And so it's unclear whether they were lesbians themselves or whether people just read it this way or... Or what did those people maybe mean by lesbian? Yeah. Like, you know, these two people who were assigned female at birth have agreed to spend their life together, so I'm going to use the word lesbian to convey that. Yeah. Regardless of how I even understand their specific relationship to each other. Yeah, I do expect there's maybe an extent to which local people talking to anthropologists about this are simplifying because they're like, you don't... The term that these dumb anthropologists understand is lesbians. Yeah. 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 They're like, we know about Western sexuality. You'll get it if I say this. Yeah. yeah. Or you'll leave me alone if I'm just like, they were lesbians, okay? What do you (laughs) want? Get out of my bar. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And the anthropologist is like, yes, and drives away in their their little car. (laughs) car. Yeah. 
So, mate, you won't know the answer because you don't speak Albanian. Is there, like, Albanian scholarship on this? There is Albanian scholarship on this, and I don't speak Albanian, <laughs> so I can't really speak to the Albanian scholarship except where other people have referenced it. I wonder if it's better. Yeah, I don't know. Because I feel like a fair bit of what we've discussed is just, like, a breakdown of communication. Mm. The potential mm. for, like, anthropologists and people in northern Albania to just not be able to communicate yeah. complex ideas of gender and sexuality. It does tend to be, though, that, like, outside of these sort of isolated communities in northern Albania, the concept of a sworn virgin is something that people have heard of, but they're not 100% clear whether it's... Ah, yeah. Still happens, or whether it did happen in the past, or whether it's mythical. Michael Pataniti, who wrote a, like, long journalistic article about sworn virgins in the last couple of years, mentioned that when he said to his, like, driver translator local guide person that that's what he was looking for the translator was like that's like looking for a unicorn (laughs) okay um so i think just depending on where you come from in albania this is something you might have heard of or might not have heard of Mm. in more recent years like the last couple of years i think a documentary or a film of some kind in albania came out about like sworn virgins. Okay. So they might be becoming more well known. A lot of people did discuss the fact that after the fall of communism, a lot of older Albanian customs have been coming back, mm-hmm. such as the blood feuds. But also such as sworn virgins? And they wondered whether the practice of sworn virgins would also see a revival. Um, mm-hmm. But as far as we can see at this stage, we don't know. Okay. Um, the youngest sworn virgin that anyone's found in recent years has still been in their like. 50s. Okay. But again, everyone sort of agreed that there are a bunch of sworn virgins out there who they just don't know where they are. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And they're yeah. not up for being spoken to by anthropologists. So yeah, that's all I've got for you. There's so much that could be done here and even like so much, I guess, I could have done going further into depth about like, you know, how this interacted with religion or like yeah, things mm-hmm. like that. Many questions to explore. I think it's very interesting that we've talked about here about a traditional transmasculine role when we generally have talked about traditional transfeminine roles. Yeah. Like, this is the first time that we've had a transmasculine mm-hmm. kind of socially and culturally accepted And I, yeah, I guess example. it's worth being clear uh, as well as we often ask the opposite question when we're talking about transfeminine roles. There aren't any opportunities for... No. Okay. People were often like specifically asked about this and they would be like, why would why would a man want to become okay. a woman? That's so <laughs> shameful. <laughs> okay, okay, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It also, I think, is worth noting that in the sort of Native American contexts we've looked at, the transfeminine role is a third gender role. That's true. Where That's true. in this case, it's more of a, I guess, binary crossover. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I guess. Mean... Uh, I guess it kind of depends on how you look at it, though, because I think that, like, possibly you could argue that this has its own sort of yeah. distinct norms and so forth, especially with a lot of people referring to themselves as multiple different things. Like, I yeah. think that if we had a word that they used to describe this, that in and of itself would have gone a long way to bias us towards looking at this as a third distinct yeah that's society that's true i guess just yeah in the in the reading i did the feeling i get is more of a you transition to a male gender role to a greater or lesser extent maybe completely maybe partially Mm -hmm. i guess another reason when we've talked about indigenous american gender a reason that i've chosen in the two episodes i've done on this to read the two genders we've discussed, so Bate in Crow culture and Lamina in Zuni culture, as a third gender 
is because there was kind of specific religious roles that yeah. people of these genders played that were not played by men or by women but played by people of these genders mm. and i guess in the albanian context we're looking at kind of more of a separation perhaps between religion and this aspect yeah. of the culture that's kind yeah. of this secular code layered over over religion whatever your religion may be so that's a factor this is true and I also think it is worth saying I guess a reason to think of it as a third gender is that it's one with like some unique yeah yeah. I guess social roles that are specific to that gender (laughs) yeah and I guess that's kind of a reason why I've often conceptualised that as a third gender in those episodes we've done I think trying to throw up where the boundaries are between gender roles is very difficult yeah yeah. but I think like it is a question that's worth asking that not when some like idiot like your awful cousin at your family barbecue is like how many genders are there you know yeah Yeah. attack helicopters or whatever nonsense i want to come up with but um i forgot where the sentence started but um (laughs) you know it is kind of worth saying like when studying other people's you know is it accurate or useful to say these people had more than two gender roles Mm. who gets to decide when that like quote-unquote third gender role exists like does our society like how many gender roles does our society have yeah yeah yeah. that's true because you could argue that our society only has two even though two don't exist it's like when when do you say that one has been like canonized enough into a separate yeah 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 to exist yeah, no, that, that's... I, obviously there's more than two genders, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but, like, I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, and we sort of, I guess, and, like, our society has sort of, you know, two genders that are recognised, but even within that, like, there are different types of women which are socially acceptable mm. and some which are not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, there are kinds of career women that are acceptable. And kinds that aren't. And that kind of thing. But we, as a society, agree that, you know, all types, like, if you're a career woman or you're a stay-at-home mum, those are two very different roles, but they're the same gender. Yeah, Yeah. they're not two gender, two feminine gender roles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like, talking about, say, crow people, you could argue that Barté and woman are two different feminine gender roles. yeah. Which would make sense. Yeah. But you could also conceptualise them as two types of women. And crow people do sometimes refer to Bate as women. Yeah. Language means nothing. <laughs> Language means nothing, exactly. And, like, people wildly here, like, refer to sworn virgins as men or as women or, like, some of them are men and some of them are women. Individual people are men or women at different times. Yeah, or at the same time. different conversations with different people, yeah. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. If you enjoyed that episode, we have a lot more episodes. How many do we have now? Oh, like like 60 billion. About 80. Same thing. Yeah, 60 (laughs) billion, whatever. Which you can find wherever you found this. You can also find us on Twitter, Tumblr, or Facebook as Queer as Fact. If you want to contact us directly, you can email us at at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a review. It really helps us to reach a wider audience someone recently suggested to us that we include an acknowledgement of country in our podcast which we agreed it was high time we do that so we'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Yalukut Wheelam clan of the Boon We pay our respects to their elders, both past and present, and acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast was recorded. We'll be back on February the 1st when Jason and Eli will be talking about the book and movie Tell It to the Bees. See you then. <laughs>